Hi, everyone, and welcome to ForageCast, a podcast from Forage Genetics. Each month, we take a deep dive into alfalfa topics and address real on-farm issues that revolve around alfalfa's integration into cropping systems. And now, here's your host, Emily Message. I'm Dr. Emily Message, Technical Support Specialist with Forage Genetics International. Today, we have Matt Souter with us, Director of Commercial Products at FGI. Matt has been with Forage Genetics for five years, previously working for Winfield United since 2002. Matt is an avid sorghum enthusiast who does a great job of promoting all of the benefits that swarm season grass has to offer. Matt, thanks so much for being here with me. So let's just get started off with, with some of the basics. We know that sorghum is a warm season grass. It's been grown throughout the U.S. for many years. So what are just some of the top line benefits of sorghum? Particularly, let's, let's focus on in comparison to other warm season options like corn or even perennial options like Bermuda or Bahia grass. So the, I think the, the easy answer to that is simply that there is so much versatility that goes with sorghum compared to many of the other crops out there. Now, versatility is a challenge because it means doing something different sometimes than what you're maybe used to. So that probably requires a little clarification. In general, sorghum establishes very quickly and it delivers excellent tonnage, especially on a per ton basis cost compared to corn and other other warm season grasses. In general, sorghum is very drought and heat tolerant, which means it's also very efficient with water and nitrogen usage. Typically, sorghum is uh, on a head-to-head basis, about 30% more efficient in water usage and about 30% more efficient in nitrogen usage than corn. And, and maybe just from an economic standpoint, sorghum in general is a relatively inexpensive crop for customers. And so as they begin to look through, how do I deliver a reasonable amount of forage or silage for my operation and I, I want to maintain costs or I'm in a sort of a rescue operation or I couldn't, you know, I'm delayed in planning, whatever the case might have been, their costs are maybe even more important than than they might have been uh, otherwise. So with sorghum, what are, and, and this is a very large generalization, but kind of what are the typical planting dates that most people are looking at? I know it's used a lot as an emergency forage, say when their original planting hasn't worked out, and then there's others that actually plan for it. What do you usually recommend? That's a great question. You know, the, the thing about sorghum that is probably the, the the biggest indicator of when you should plant and when you can use it has to do with the base growing temperature. So we all think about corn as 50 degree basic growing temperature and soybeans is base 55. Sorghum is actually a base 60 degree growing temperature. And there's a couple of things along the way that sort of determine that. So you need to make sure that your soil temperatures at that two inch level are at 60 degrees before you put your sorghum in the ground. Now, there'll be people that want to sneak in around that. And, and so you think about nighttime temperatures and things, that 60 degree piece actually relates to the pollination window at the end as well. So if you're growing one, a, a crop like a single cut or even in a grain sorghum, if you're growing something and you don't have enough season at the end to keep your nighttime temperatures above 55 degrees, especially for the week prior to pollination, then you can encounter some some pollen sterility, and you're probably going to miss some of the starch opportunity that you had in that in that ration that, or, or in the uh, silage or the product that comes out of there. And beyond that, it, it, I mean, really the primary issue is not only the 60 degrees on the front end, but just making sure that you're going to get to physiological maturity before freeze. So I think that would put the bookends out there about when and where do you do it. If I was going to translate that back into something that's maybe a little more pragmatic for any growers that may be listening, it means that going north you really have to watch your maturity. 
going south, you have some latitude. But but we also see people using very early stuff in other places. I, I, I can point out that, that just because you're going south, you say, well, they, they don't use early maturity. Absolutely, they do. When they double crop behind wheat, stuff comes off and they're planting in the southern plains probably the 1st of July on some of these things. They're using a very early season or short season product. And their primary concern is the things we talked about. It wasn't the 60 degree soil temp for planting. It was about trying to finish physiological maturity and, and finish flowering before you ran into temperature inhibition. And I think that's a really important thing to point out is that even if you're using this as an emergency forage, so it wasn't necessarily your plan to be working with sorghum this year, you you still have to be thinking about the overall context of what your goal is with your cropping rotation. So don't just plant the cheapest first sorghum variety that you come across. You really want to make sure that you're maximizing your production per acre. And so looking at kind of those growing degree days, looking at that season length for these different varieties is going to help you overall, not just to get a forage off that acre but to maximize your forage production you're getting off of that acre. I know in, in my experience, we, we do use sorghum quite a bit in that emergency forage situation. You know, even in comparison to corn, I think it has a little bit more flexibility in terms of if you're getting a little bit later into that year, you know, and it, it pr- produces a, a great quality forage too that a lot of animals can use, which again, we're going to get into here in a little bit. So I think it's it's just one of those things that you really, if, if you have questions about it, it's one of those things that you, it's probably not a coffee shop discussion, because it's it can be a little fickle depending on how you do it, but there are people out there that will help you get it right. So I, I think having the discussion with different folks and digging in is, is a good idea always. Absolutely. And the interesting thing with sorghum is because it's it, I feel like it's traditionally been seen as something that's grown more in the southern half of the U.S. Now we have people that are, are playing with it more kind of in those, those northern latitudes. And we're seeing quite a bit of university research coming out on it as well. So, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of places that you can look for this information and for those recommendations, again, to get that optimal production. We did some research with it at Montana State. And, and again, it was forage sorghum. And we were looking at different states stages of maturity at harvest. Do you have any recommendations on that kind of what you would see is the best optimization between both yield as well as quality for forage sorghum? The best case scenario is that you're going to see a flower and you want to, as soon as you see color in the top of the head, whether it's a white grain or a brown grain or whatever else, go cut the product, go chop it. So Matt, are there any challenges then that we would associate with these multi-cut varieties with sorghum? Absolutely, there can be. And the primary issue comes down to the, the moisture levels at harvest. Really, it's about uh, having a drying condition that allows us to get the product out. There are multiple ways to manage that. There are people that prefer to see smaller stems because they think that it carries less moisture. And that may even be true in some cases. There are some that feel better about using lower populations, which allows you to create a larger stem, and then using crimpers to make sure that you crack that stem opener, that you have a way to drive some moisture out. Actually, you know, the irony, Emily, is that I think that a lot of those things are also related to fertility. And oftentimes sorghum is put in a situation where you may not have great fertility. It's great at mining products out. It is more efficient. So you typically don't see the issue. But if you have things like potassium deficiencies, I see it in corn. I think it happens in sorghum as well, that you can see a limitation in how that plant is able to mitigate water movement in or out of cells. And it's in corn, that means it might not dry down. In sorghum, it it means it it might not let go of the water even as much, even more than sorghum already doesn't. So 
I think from a multi-cut standpoint, just rolling up hay, make sure you think about before you make any dramatic changes to your program or before you really jump off on a hay program with, with a, a multi-cut product, that you think about how are you going to uh, manage the moisture of that stem, which is the driver behind all of the uh, multi-cut issues that you might have. One question yeah. that is brought up to me a lot with people that are, are trying to grow sorghum for hay, for dry hay, is that issue of stem thickness and dry down. Do you see any issues with those thicker stems and, and, and getting to the appropriate moisture? Or are there things that people can do to help speed that process up a little bit better? I, I really think that if you can just make sure you crimp the hay, that's that to me, I think, is probably the best case scenario. I, I am a proponent of lower planting populations. I think, you know, if you're thinking about cost management, that's fine. But on, on an output basis, balancing your population it's the best thing to do. I simply don't believe that planting more than 30 pounds per acre of a lower quality product is actually a fix for, for managing your hay dry down. I think you can run into exactly the same problems that you would otherwise, even with even with larger stem products. Absolutely. It's situationally dependent. And it also depends on what equipment that they have available. Maybe not everybody has, you know, a, a crimper. They may not all have a, a flail conditioner. And so those those sorts of things are necessary in order to make sure that we get that good quality product off of it. That is totally correct. So optimizing yield, I think is, it's a little different. So it goes back to that sort of discussion about corn. So corn is so determinant. And, and, and I know you asked a, a, a sorghum question, so I won't make this long. But when corn spikes through the ground, you can probably take the day that that thing spikes, and I can, if it's under reasonably well-managed conditions, I can tell you within two days when it's going to black layer. I can tell you when the combine needs to be there. After it spikes out of the ground, if we don't hit any snags, here's what it's going to be. And you can't really do that with sorghum. So maturity itself is really built around the idea of when does it flower. And then there's this variability oftentimes on the backside about the grain field period, about when does it go dormant, when does it not so on and so forth. And you can have variability on both sides. If you think about it from those bell curves, and we think about biomass accumulation, and there's sort of a triple phase. You have three phases. You have establishment that's a bit logarithmic. You have the second phase where there's really a sort of linear increase in biomass. And then when you get to flowering, it sort of tips over and you see the third phase where it plateaus. I hope everybody can see that in radio land here. But I, I, what I'm saying is, if you can, can get the slope of the line in that second phase, as steep as possible, then you've maximized the opportunity for yield. Mm -hmm. And it's probably driven as much by the florets per panicle as anything else. Sorghum is very population sensitive. And, and, and because it's very small seeded and because it's very cheap, most people don't pay a lot of attention to it. They're like, ah, well, we got it pretty close. You said plant five pounds and, and we got six and a half on, or we got six on. You know, if, if you missed your corn population by 20%, the bank might call and say we have a problem, right? But in sorghum, going from five pounds to six pounds is inexpensive, but the agronomic cost might be devastating. So again, optimizing that yield will be obviously hit a target population, but what you do when you plant in the right temperature like that, it's really around making optimized and getting the plant to grow in a way that optimizes the florets per panicle so that it, it will finish with uh, the best yield possible. So along those lines, then, you mentioned population density and how that's going to have pretty significant impacts. So let's just go into what are kind of the recommended seeding rates then that we should be looking for to, again, optimize overall production, optimize yield. 
Absolutely. Uh, that's a great question. It's probably the number one thing when you think about challenges or failures in the sorghum world, especially on a single cut. So I'm, let, let me make sure that I'm going to preface this with it, it's a different animal than the, the multi-cut products. I think we could talk about that in a minute as well. On a single cut product, if you, if you have a reasonable idea of what your corn population is, you're going to want to plant between two and three times your corn population. Most of the time, that's the best way for you to maximize your yield and minimize your risk. And so if you plant too thick and you, you want, I want all this leaf area out there, and yet you created a very small diameter in the stalk, then you run the risk of accentuating lodging issues. And lodging issues are, they're as bad as anything else. That's probably four and a half to five pounds per acre. There are people that are gonna tell you that you need to plant 10 and 11 pounds, things like that. I, I don't think that that's really necessary there may be some products that perform better at seven and eight pounds, but I think I would get very close to your, your recommendations to come from each supplier to make sure you do the right thing. In general, last thing I'll tell you, the research I referenced just a moment ago from 25, 30 years ago suggests that one inch of available moisture during the growing season will support about 4,000 plants. In a single cut system, that means if you have a 10-inch environment, that includes not just rainfall and irrigation, it includes the profile that you already have there, so you have to make some estimates about all those things. That 10-inch environment during the growing season should support about 40,000 plants. It's going to be about three pounds of seed. Okay, good to know. Now, we, we've used these terms single cut and multi-cut already quite a bit. It's probably pretty straightforward to, to most people, but do you just want to kind of define what you mean by single cut and multi-cut and, and how are they used in different scenarios too? So single cut products are going to be those products that best approximate what you would see in a corn silage production system. That's very straightforward what you're looking at. Now, there are some potential uses that have not really come to light commercially yet if you think about biofuels and cellulosic ethanol and things like that, but that's still a single cut product and you would never use them for a feed quality product in, in an animal feeding system. Multi-cut products, I think historically we all would understand that they are meant to be a hay crop that allows us to, similar to alfalfa, go out and harvest probably in your first cut close to seven or eight weeks, six, you know, 60 days, 60 inches tall. Those are kind of the two rules of thumb on your first swath. And then if you cut it, you know, five or six inches tall, then it regrows. And then, especially if you have enough growing season, when you get further south, you know, we have longer day lengths and you have, or, or you, have, you have more days in the, in the season, then you can get multiple cuts. And it's not uncommon for us to see people that can get three cuts out of those products when you get far enough south. When we get north, the issue really becomes, do you, do you want a silage product and are you going to chop it, which is the single cut model? And for 90% of the people out there, uh, using a multi-cut product is about trying to create dry hay. Okay. There so, are, so now you mentioned, you know, regrowth and, and you used a five to six inches stubble to allow for that regrowth. Is that kind of a hard set or are there any limitations to how you need to, to manage your harvesting to allow for regrowth or that could inhibit regrowth? You know, I, I, I think if you cut too low, then you, what you actually what sorghum does is it regrows from the axillary buds. And so you want to leave the first node or two above ground to make sure that it has something to, to kick back out. You also get a fair amount of photosynthetic activity from the sheath and not just from the blade of the leaf. 
So that helps having just a little bit more. The rule of thumb is go out, take a Coke can, set it next to your swather. If it touches the top of the Coke can, you are low enough. Don't go any lower. Okay. Keep it a little bit higher, you're, you're going to be fine. The other thing about optimizing some of those things, and I think the reason that Multicut probably has a fit in uh, some, we'll call it dairy systems, or especially where people are managing effluent, is it gives you the opportunity to make in-season applications of effluent more than one point. And, and so if you're managing lagoon water and just have, looking for a way to, how do I keep this stuff going out the door? Multicuts may offer you that, that scenario. One thing I will tell you, though, you want to watch in your multicut systems for specifically disease-resistant products. Buying a cheap multicut product will get you cheap disease resistance. And applying lagoon water does not always work very well with that. So you want to look for healthy stuff that's going to cure well and, and, and is going to regrow and, and going to provide you a reasonably good second cut. Most of the tonnage usually comes from first cut. There are products that do exceptionally well on second cut as well. Okay. And just one more question on this point, just so we're, we're clear on everything. Because it is an annual, is there any sort of maturity impacts at harvest that could affect regrowth? So, you know, if you harvest too late, like we see with, say, wheat and barley, it's going to inhibit that regrowth process, or are we good okay. to go with it? That is an excellent question. Managing the quality of the hay is really what this is all about. So if you're delayed in a conventional multi-cut product, and conventional meaning conventional maturity, then you run the risk of that product actually going into the reproductive phase. So this 50-60 this day window that I just talked about is really related to when do you get to the right amount of growth and you maximize your tonnage and yet you haven't begun the reproductive process. So once that plant goes from vegetative to reproductive, two things happen. One, it begins to dry out just a little bit uh, and, it, and it changes what's going on. But the real issue is that it starts to lay down lignin in the cell walls and it gets a little woody. So if we want to maintain high quality hay, what we typically try to do is prevent that heading out. If I can add to that, the thing that probably is the, the easiest tool out there is to look for a photoperiod sensitive product. And photoperiod sensitive products are, it, it's, a, it's a conventional trait. It's, it's something that's bred into the background of sorghum. It's, it's naturally occurring. But think about what happens when we bring a tropical plant to the latitudes in the U.S. Sometimes it decides it doesn't want to flower because it doesn't have the right day length. And that's what happens when we use a photoperiod sensitive product. So you can use something like photoperiod sensitivity to buy you some extra time. You have a longer time to harvest your crop. So you can increase the tons and, and, and so on. And you can actually make it versatile enough that you can you have a week of swing time that you might not have had with your alfalfa if you had to get to it first or other things like that. Matt, do you just want to, for those that may not be familiar with, with that term, do you just want to kind of briefly define what photo period sensitivity, what that means for these different varieties? I, I want to, I, I hope I can effectively. It's, it's, it's a little bit complex. I, I'm going to compare this briefly to soybeans. And we all kind of understand that we plant different maturity soybeans at different latitudes because there's a day length effect. And we plant them at different latitudes because we want them to flower at the right time. So most of the time, whether you're planting a two, three, four, five, or two, three, or four, then it, it flowers about the 4th of July. That's what most of them do. And, that, and, and so it's triggered by a day length that it encounters. In the case of sorghum products that use photoperiod sensitivity, we're using the same sort of response but it's reversed. 
what we're doing is we're planting at a time, most of the time it's about the 1st of June, that says after this date, that plant will not encounter the day length that it needs to trigger flowering, and so it won't go reproductive until the end. I will tell you that not all photoperiod sensitive products are, there, there's, there's very light photoperiod responses and there's very strong photoperiod. If you plant early enough, say you're in central or south Texas, or you're in Florida where they're using this for manure, green manure type crops or other things, and you plant very early, it can be a challenge if you don't have strong photoperiod sensitivity, you'll see a break because they've run into a day length that early in the year that says, oh, the plant says, oh, time to make the babies. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it, it overcomes the photoperiod response. If you have a very strong photoperiod response uh, or, or sensitivity, it typically is not an issue, but but there are some nuances to it. Yeah, and I think just kind of the simplest way to boil this down almost is just that with these photoperiod sensitive varieties, the goal is that it remains vegetative longer so that, again, we can kind of optimize that that quality quantity trade off um, that otherwise we would see that quality decline pretty rapidly once that plant hits that reproductive phase. So that that's kind of at least in my experience, how we've used that and why growers have chosen to use those sorts of varieties is so that they can, again, kind of maintain that quality perhaps a little bit later into the season than they otherwise would have been able to. The next thing that I wanted to talk about here, so we mentioned different types. Is there any differences between BMR sorghum and and BMR corn, or is it pretty much kind of the same across the board and how it works? That's a great question. So the gene systems are actually they're the same ones, cough and seacock, but I think just from a practical standpoint, BMR is all in, in all crops were really the result of chemical mutagenesis 60 years ago. And when you think about what was being created at that point, it, it was it was sort of cut in glass with a three pounds pound sledge. So there were a lot of things that they created that didn't live, didn't survive, weren't weren't really usable in the marketplace and weren't usable in breeding systems to create stuff. And the brown midrib, the brown is actually uh, a result of that truncated process because the phenols build up in the midribs and that's what gives the plant its brown color. There's a lot of myths that exist around BMR. One of them is that more brown is better, potentially. One of them is that you know all BMR is better than not BMR. I think we've proven that that's not correct as well. BMR in general is higher quality products because people have to work harder at the production scenario. They do typically get tested more. And I think that most BMR products out there actually deliver better digestibility. So in general, I, I have no qualms with someone saying, I want BMR because it's, it's going to be the best. Fine. What we found in our research and, and effectively in the last four years we've run a pretty significant number of NIR tests and quality tests. And what we found is that all of our upstream research shows that there are products that are conventional products that can deliver higher quality numbers. In other words, just because it's BMR doesn't make it automatically bulletproof or better, but just because it's conventional doesn't mean it can't be better than BMR. The, the big issue that I have is every grower that wants high quality should do three things. They should look for whatever information is out there that they can to document, and not just one test. You need you need your replicated or multi-year data, multi-site data, as much as you can get, and that's excessive. That's really, really hard in the sort of world. It's not easy to come by. 
you should abs- absolutely listen to the experts in your marketplace. So are a lot of people grazing sorghum? Is it usually going to be on that regrowth period? They're not necessarily going to grow sorghum specifically for that grazing purpose, or have you seen it used in both ways? I've seen it used in both ways. I think it's less common that you see people actively grazing a growing crop of sorghum. You oftentimes see people grazing fields that may have they just let the third cutting go and it's standing in the field and you see people going out for standing hay over the winter. Part of the part of the things that you should keep in mind around multi-cut products and feeding are related to prussic acid and nitrates. Now, prussic acid has been a concern for a long time and it's brought up every year and somebody really gets excited about it. I started in sorghum in 1995 which is maybe not that long ago for a lot of people. I have yet to encounter a single case of prussic acid poisoning. Now, are you dealing mainly with cattle or have you also come across, have you come across any issues with horses? Because we know horses are more susceptible to to prussic acid poisoning. Yes, I I, I, I have not heard of any. Okay. Primarily, we think about cool weather at the end of the season. That creates prussic acid, which is a, a real, an HCN compound, which is, you, you think cyanide, everybody got mm-hmm. it. Mm, it's not good. But prussic acid will also bubble off. So the two things you do about a grazing situation, or even if you're managing it in hay, is you give your hay enough time to cure, and you wait about seven days before you roll it up because it's going to bubble off as a gas. And then when you roll up your hay, you don't have any prussic acid in it. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing happens for standing hay we would say, just don't turn your animals in too soon. And you generally don't have the issue with with prussic acid. Nitrates are a totally different issue. And and that is really more, not just of a, gosh, it was tough and we encountered alternative respiration. It's about arrested development of the plant. And what happens is that the plant is still taking up nutrients and putting nitrates into the plant, sorghum specifically, has a history of sticking things in the lower stalk. So the sorghum plant has uses its lower stalk as a secondary storage organ. And so you see an accumulation of nitrogen under very difficult growing conditions. People would be tempted if you had massive sweeping droughts, which we are familiar with in the West this year. Yes. Uh, people are tempted to take anything and everything for, for grazing or to just make sure you can keep the cows fed long enough to get to next year, get to the next season. Uh, I would tell you that with nitrates, you really should follow the extension recommendations. In a lot of cases, if there's not enough hay to pay for it and you can't get high enough up to get out of that lower stalk, sometimes the best case is just to plow it back in if it's stunted and bad enough. Nitrate, nitrates, I think, is a far bigger issue, and we're all, we're all a little more familiar with that because it occurs in other crops under the similar conditions. Absolutely. I, I think prussic acid, while perhaps a concern, is much more easily managed. Nitrates, more widespread, of course, as you mentioned. And the big issue that we have with that is that really nitrate levels may not decrease. So we're saying, you know, with prussic acid, those levels should should decrease. It should become safe. If you have standing hay that you cut and it has a high nitrate level, it's likely going to stay at that level. And the only thing that changes that is, say, precipitation. And so we've actually encountered issues where, you know, there's a whole haystack that was left outside. The top bales, they tested fine in nitrates because the the precipitation, the moisture actually caused those nitrates to leach to those bottom bales. And then those bottom bales actually had lethal levels of nitrates. You know, so there's different things that you need to be aware of there. Absolutely. I, I, when you put the hay bales 
in there, I, I was in a different place. So I will tell you that, that we talked about sorghum being able to go dormant and things. So if you had a, a, an opportunity to plant a crop, say middle or end of May, it comes up, it's under excessive drought. You got enough to get it, you know, 12 inches tall and it's under tremendous pressure. Maybe it gets to 36 inches tall, let's call it that. And you say, gosh, I really ought to take that crop off right now. You might be tempted to do that, but I would watch the nitrates. What's going to help you with the nitrates is actually, it's still precipitation. But if you can get regrowth, mm -hmm. the plant will remobilize those eventually. So I was thinking about from a standing crop standpoint, the challenge I think you run into is when, especially at the end of the season, your plant dies before it has a chance to see vegetative regrowth or utilization of those nitrates and remobilization. And that's, so it, it ends up being the same thing you talked about, right? You know, yeah. it, then it's in a, then it's in a static place where you don't have actively growing plants and then it has to leach uh, exactly. at, at best. And we do know that as that plant matures, the, the nitrate levels overall will decrease again, just kind of that maturation effect, the dilution effect, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's safe just because you let it get a little bit more mature. You know, again, the regrowth is a completely different thing. Um, standing haze where we see a lot of issues occurring, even in ensiled forage too, that can still be a problem with those it nitrate levels. So right. I, I, and in all cases, a test is cheaper than animals. A exactly. test is cheaper than animals. I agree. Exactly. You know, research shows you can have anywhere from a zero to maybe an 80% decrease in nitrates, but I wouldn't want to be on that, that zero end and just <laughs> feeding my animals. Right. I mean, I know we have a, an exceptional year here in 2021 with the drought uh, um, covering half the U S we're, we're short on forages, but you still got to be careful with what you're feeding your animals. Yep. While we're kind of on the, this topic of maybe things to watch out for, I do want to touch on, you know, Maybe where are, when are some situations that sorghum may not be ideal for? So I know, you know, working in the West, higher elevations, it didn't always work again, just because we weren't getting the appropriate heat units for growth. So what are you seeing? Do you have any kind of general recommendations or overall recommendations that we can say for a wide area of people to just kind of be mindful of if they're considering using sorghum? Absolutely. So I think let's, let's, kind of take this from more than one angle. So the first one will be just the, the positioning of the products. And we talked about sort of in the opening here about it's a 60 degree base so growing temperature and you need to be concerned about what the temperature is about that week prior to flowering. So make sure you have plenty of season to finish. The other thing, is if, and, and so when, when that happens, elevation gets to be a challenge, especially when you get over 4,500 feet, even in the South Plains. Some, you know, if you get to Texas, New Mexico, over 4,500 feet, occasionally it gets cool. And if you're in the back half of August, you, you've seen some some weather events some years can still clip you if you're not careful. So there's the environmental aspect. That elevation play would happen everywhere. And then there's the latitude issue. So all the way to the Canadian border is a little spooky with a single cut product because you're kind of gambling to say, I'm going to maximize my tonnage by finishing the life cycle. Once I get north of a certain point, some years that's I-90, some years that's Saskatoon. Once I get north of a certain point, it, it's really you should just stick to a multi-cut product because that's the way it's the best way to mitigate your risk and to make sure you get some return. All right, Matt. Well, I think we covered a lot of topics. I know we could probably talk for, for quite a while more on this, but I really want to thank you for, for joining us today. I really appreciate all your, your thoughts and insights on it and your experience working with Sorghum over the years. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. This has been really good. Awesome. Thank you, Emily, and thanks to you, our listeners. If you'd like more information about forage genetics or any of the information you heard about today, 
please contact your local alfalfa seed dealer or visit our website at www.foragegenetics.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. Because of factors outside forage genetics control, such as weather, soil, planting, and product application, individual results cannot be predicted or guaranteed by Forage Genetics International. Always read and follow all label instructions.